Habakkuk 3, um, as we mentioned early in the series, Habakkuk probably was a prophet in that tradition of prophets that were appointed as songwriters um, in the temple. You think of Asaph, the Psalms of Asaph. Asaph was a, a prophet and uh, has all the ingredients of the genre of a psalm with an introduction, some silas sprinkled throughout, uh, even the kind of closing um, statement which gives some information about the psalm for the choir director on my stringed instruments. Um, and so let's, let's read Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear, O Lord. Revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight, His rays flashing from His hand, and there is the hiding of His power. Before Him goes pestilence, and plague comes after Him. He stood and surveyed all the earth, and looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered, the ancient hills collapsed, His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. You cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep utter, deep utter, uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away in the light of your arrows at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from, ne- from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed into scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with horses, with your horses, on the surge of many waters. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered, enters my bones and my place, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, 
yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh Adonai is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places for the choir director on my stringed instruments. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your law, O Lord. Enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might see the glory of the riches of our inheritance in the saints and your power toward us who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you have heard of, if you haven't, you should have heard of her. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. In 1967, she was in a diving accident in Chesapeake Bay, and she fractured her spine and has been a quadriplegic ever since. Not long after her diving accident, she was in hospital for two years, being rehabilitated. During that time, a guy who worked for her father came alongside of her, would read the scriptures to her regularly. His name was Steve Estes. He would go on to become a pastor. It was during these times of scripture reading that while while um, Johnny was raised in a Christian home, it was there that the gospel became clear to her and her understanding and pierced her heart. And she yielded her life to the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving work on her behalf. Well, some years later, Johnny and Steve would actually go on to write a book that would be a gift to the church. It's called... When God Weeps. And if you ever want a good book on the sovereignty of God and suffering, you need to read that book. It's a gem. Well, I'm told, I've never been in an elevator with Johnny Erickson Tata, but I'm told that if you are ever in an elevator with her, she begins to break out and singing a hymn. I'm not sure why it's in an elevator, but that's what happens. Well... Habakkuk breaks out in song at the end of the book of Habakkuk here. That's the final chapter. It is a song, a song unto the Lord, a song in the midst of anticipated tremendous suffering. But that's not how the book of Habakkuk begins. If you've been following us in the series of, uh, of the book of Habakkuk, you know that it begins with tremendous sorrow. It begins with tremendous worry. This, this, this book goes from sorrow to singing, from worry to worship. The beginning of Habakkuk, he's crying out a kind of lament unto the Lord where he's pouring out his heart and he sees the wickedness and the darkness of God's covenant people. And he's saying, God, how long are you going to stand there and not do anything? Look at all the wickedness and rebellion against you with your covenant people. Aren't you going to do something? And God says, I am doing something. 
God was going to send the Babylonians from the north. He calls them the Chaldeans in, in chapter 1. And they are going to come and wreak havoc upon the Israelites. But then comes Habakkuk's second complaint. His second lament is, Lord, they're worse than us. You're sending the Babylonians, this pagan, wicked people. God, your eyes are too pure to behold evil with approval. God, why would you send them? But eventually Habakkuk begins to acquiesce and speak to his own heart and basically say, God, I don't understand it, but you are God and you will do as you will. And that's what we see ultimately here in chapter 3 where his heart sings to the Lord as, he, as he's going to recollect God's past judgment and salvation, but he's finally going to resolve at the end that no matter what, ha- what God has for Israel on the horizon, no matter what kinds of sufferings, what kinds of chastisements and judgments God is going to bring upon that great nation, his hope is in the Lord. And so let's pick it up. In verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. So this is kind of the the title that lays over this, this prayer, which is like, as I mentioned earlier, is very much like the Psalms. You know, often a Psalm will say, a Psalm of David such and such, and sometimes it gives the, uh, a kind of a time stamp when this psalm was written or uh, what David was recollecting when he wrote this psalm. It's a, it's a prayer. It's a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, the author of this book. And then it's said that it's according to the Shigianoth. And we all know the Shigianoth is a special dance. No, I'm just kidding. It sounds like the Shigianoth. <laughs> we have no idea what the Shigianoth is. Um, we'll ask God in heaven what the Shigianoth is. Verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. Habakkuk says, I, I, I now understand more of what you are going to do. And Lord, I fear. My heart is trembling before you. <clears throat> and then he says, O oh Lord, and notice all capitals, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And here now is a threefold prayer. And this is a glorious, beautiful prayer. A prayer that we could utter in our own times. Revive the work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. <clears throat> He's anticipating God using the Babylonians as a kind of bludgeoning instrument of judgment against His own covenant people. And He says, I fear. And then He says this prayer, Revive your work in the midst of the years. The phrase in the midst of the years means in the midst of these years. Do it quickly, Lord. And notice this again, this threefold prayer. Number one, revive. Bring life. God, do something amongst your people. Bring forth life. Now this is huge as we live in our own dark times. Now we may not be a covenant people like in the same way Israel was. In in other words, the United States is not a covenant nation. But what a great prayer. 
A great prayer that focuses on the real matters of the, uh, that are the, the real problem. Namely, it's a spiritual problem. It's not a political problem. Although the political problems are reflective of spiritual problems. But at root, we are a nation that's in rebellion against Almighty God. And friend, if, if your hope is in some kind of political strategy, can I suggest to you you're somewhat naive? Now, I'm not poo-pooing Christians being involved in politics and doing what we can to make our voice heard. But ultimately, people's minds are changed when they repent. When God brings life. And so this is Habakkuk's prayer. God, revive your work in the midst of the years. But then the second is to reveal. Notice what he says here. He says, in the midst of the years, make it known. Reveal yourself. And and I think his heart cry is is that perhaps in this judgment that God is bringing against against the Israelites through the Babylonians and the, the havoc that they were going to wreak, perhaps that God would make Himself known that, that His hand of judgment would be severe, that people would turn back to Him in repentance. And then third, remember... This third request, in wrath, remember mercy. God, we know, the the prophet saying, I know you're angry with us. I know your people have not done what they ought to. The priests, the kings, had been in rebellion against God. They weren't leading people. Remember, Josiah had died several years prior and and, and there was just a a, a couple more wicked kings before the end. He's saying, in wrath, remember mercy. God, be merciful to your people in the midst of your people. And again, you think, think of times like, remember when God said to Abraham that He was going to bring judgment upon another nation. Again, not a covenant nation, but He was going to wipe them off the map because of their wickedness, namely the cities on the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham then pleads with God, God, please spare this nation. Please, if there's but... Remember, he negotiates with God down to... If there's but ten righteous people, please God... Show mercy. And there wasn't actually ten righteous people. But even in wrath, God did remember mercy, did He not? He plucked Lot and his family out of that hell hole before He brought fire from heaven. That's a good prayer. This is the kind of prayer that we should be praying in these times. God... Revive your work in the midst of the years. God, make yourself known. God, awaken people. God, in the midst of your wrath, remember mercy. 
But now he's going to go on and recall in this prayer God's saving acts, His redeeming His people, but bringing judgment. Notice verse 3, God comes from Teman. And the imagery here of God coming is like God, this is common in the prophets, it's like God coming as a warrior. Him coming as a warrior and delivering and saving His people and bringing a left cross in judgment against His enemies. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. The Selah, again, we don't know. We can't be certain about what it means, but we see these sprinkled throughout this prayer and we see these common in the psalm. Most likely it means a kind of pause. Chew on this. Put this in your pipe and smoke on it for a bit. Let this soak in. Let this sink in. Ponder this. God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. Now, Teman, Paran, these are clear allusions to Mount Sinai. These are clear allusions to Mount Sinai. Teman was a desert oasis in Eden, but it more likely represents the entire region south of the Dead Sea. Paran lies west of Eden across the valley. Listen to Deuteronomy 33 verse 2. He says, it says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, and shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones, and at His right hand there was flashing lightning for them. So again, the imagery is very clear. This is the imagery of God descending the mount, the Mount of Sinai, after He had delivered, hand-delivered His people out of Egypt, saved them, and now He was revealing Himself in a very direct and intimate way to and through the mediator Moses at Mount Sinai, and now He's coming down the mountain. The second part of verse 3 His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. His rays flashing from His hand. And there is the hiding of His power. God's manifesting His glory much like the sun and the moon. Verse 5, Before Him goes pestilence and the plague comes after Him. Again, this imagery going back to the book of Exodus and the the plagues of Egypt, the pestilence that God would send, that that He sent upon the Egyptians. Again, uh, Habakkuk is thinking, anticipating these plagues that God used against His enemies with Egypt, He may very well be using against us. Verse 6. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered and the ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. 
Again, notice the imagery. He, he looked and startled the nation. Again, this is a picture of God standing there like a giant warrior and the nations are trembling. And, and this is what we see when we read after the Exodus, during the book of Joshua, the early pages in, in Joshua, we see uh, Jericho is frightened. The testimony of Rahab is that when we heard of this God who delivered the the Hebrews out of Egypt and brought the great and mighty nation of the Egyptians to their knees, our hearts melted in fear. The nations, those Canaanite pagan city-states, were trembling in fear. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan under distress the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. The nations of Cushan and Midian straddled the Red Sea. They would have been well aware of what God had done to the nation of Egypt and they were afraid and rightfully so. Verse 8, Did the Lord rage against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses on your chariots of salvation? Uh, what's, what's Habakkuk saying here? He's asking a rhetorical question with the implied answer, no, God wasn't angry against the sea. He wasn't angry against the creation. The creation did exactly what He told it to do. When He told the Red Sea to split, it split. But it was the peoples who were in rebellion that he was angry against. Verse 9, Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. You cleave to the earth with rivers. Again, God is exposing His bow. Although he has a concealed carry license, he's not concealing it. His bow is out in the open. God is packing and he's ready to use his weapons. Verse 11, the sun and the moon stood in their places and they went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. This is very well maybe uh, uh, an a, uh, allusion to the book of Joshua. Remember when God causes the sun to stand still? Again, God's act of deliverance as He's bringing judgment upon His enemies. Listen to Joshua chapter 10 and verse 11 through 13. As they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than, than those from the sons of Israel killed with the sword. God was bringing hailstones as a kind of way of <clears throat> stoning the enemy. <clears throat> Verse 12, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel and said, In the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. 
So the prophet is again going back to a time when God showed Himself great, bringing His judgment against His enemies and delivering His people. Verse 12, In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. Again, the warrior God goes forth. Verse 13, He went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed one. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. God's motive in the midst of these acts of judgment was the salvation of His people. And I think this is what Habakkuk is hoping in. That while he knows God is angry, God's acts of judgment are always ultimately for the deliverance of His own people. Verse 14, you pierced with his own spears, the head of, the, of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. Notice the us. Habakkuk here, they stormed in to scatter us. Habakkuk here identifies himself with the nation, with Judah. The Babylonians would rejoice in devouring this nation. Verse 15, you trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. Another reference to the Exodus. Verse 16, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Habakkuk saying, as I think about this, my heart trembles. My inward parts tremble. My lip is quivering. Decay enters my bones. In my place I tremble. He's anticipating God's guns of justice coming against him and his own people. And then he gets specific in what he's possibly anticipating. Verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom... And there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the food and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Habakkuk here is envisioning a time of total economic collapse. And notice there's a kind of progression here from the fig tree to the grapes, to the olive, to no food from the fields, to flocks and cattle, gone. You think of the fig tree. Well, it's a bad fig harvest, but you know, you could probably live without figs. There's no 
No grapes on the vine. Okay, it's nice to have grapes. It's nice to have wine, but you could still drink water and milk during that period. But then, he says, there's no food. Or, I'm sorry, no olive, which means no oil. That's starting to get a little bit closer to home. The ability to make bread and other foods would become difficult. No food from the field. Now, all of a sudden, now the, the foods, the staple diet, the basic foods and necessities of life are gone. The flock, the fold, the cattle, now there's, there's no animals. There's no, no food in the field for the animals to even graze upon, so the animals are dying. Habakkuk is envisioning a time of total economic collapse. He's anticipating, he's preparing. And by the way, that is what happened. In fact, going to another lamenting book, the book of Lamentations, which the prophet Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of Habakkuk, wrote as a, it's a kind of a funeral dirge over Jerusalem. In poetic format, in Lamentations 2.12, he says, They say to their mothers, Where is the grain and the wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. People dying in the streets of starvation. That's what happened. That was God's judgment because of Israel's rebellion. And then Lamentations 2.20 See, O Lord, and look, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring? The little ones who were born healthy, should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Jeremiah brings up what is almost unspeakable. Mothers in starvation eating their own children. That's what happened. But this hasn't happened yet as Habakkuk is writing, but he's anticipating. And so what is it, the obvious question is, what is it that undergirds his soul to write the rest of Habakkuk here and to speak of rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in His salvation, anticipating the strength that God will give him to get through this. Well, in a very real sense, much of the book of Habakkuk is all about that, but it kind of climaxes here at the end as he anchors his soul to God. And really what we see here in these final verses is Habakkuk moving from the why question to the who question. At the beginning, why God? Why do you stand back? Why do you not do something? But by the end of it, he's gazing his eyes upon who God is. He's looking to the who. And so let me give you three essential principles to prepare yourself for tremendous suffering. 
The first is to resolve to treasure in the Lord in spite of circumstances. Notice what how verse 18 begins. He, he says, Yet. Yet, I will exalt in the Lord. Yet, points us back to verse 17, right? Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines, though the, the field of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the, so, in the stalls, yet, in the midst of all this, despite all this, I am resolved that I will exalt in the Lord. I will exalt in the Lord. He's determined that he's not going to derive his joy, his ultimate happiness from the circumstances, but from the Lord Himself. I will exalt in the Lord. Now, the word exalt, E-X-U-L-T, it's not to be confused with the other word exalt, E-X-A-L-T. E-X-A-L-T means to adore, to lift up, okay? Uh, if you remember the A in exalt, you can remember that, to adore. The U, exalt with a U, U-L-T, is more the idea of rejoicing in, treasuring in, valuing, delighting in. This is the idea. He, he says, yet I will rejoice. And notice the object. In the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exalt in the Lord. Despite these impending circumstances, despite the reality of total economic collapse, despite the reality of God's wrath against His own people for their rebellion, my highest treasure will still not be touched. My greatest source of joy will still not be touched or taken away. In the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, the God who's promised to be faithful to His own people in a covenant relationship. This sounds very familiar to what the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Philippians, right? As Paul is writing... At that time being incarcerated, right? He's in prison. Now, I don't know what your week this, this past week was like, but probably you didn't spend any time in prison. Was your, was your week joy-filled? But he's writing from prison to the church in Macedonia, to the church in Philippi, and he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, telling them, Rejoice in the Lord Always, and again, just in case you didn't get it, I say rejoice. He, from prison, is telling them outside of prison to rejoice. But did you get where he told them to rejoice? What is the sphere of their rejoicing? Rejoice in the Lord. Because he knows circumstances change. But the Lord does not change. And the relationship you have with Him is unchangeable. So friend, this is huge. In fact, this is actually what Paul says later on in that chapter is his secret. Okay? 
And, and, and this is this is actually the, the, the verse that, you know, oftentimes Christian athletes use, you know, to prove that um, they're going to have victory over their opponent. You know, I'll just read it for you. Philippians 4, 12, 13. I know, Paul says, how to get along with little. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me is the idea. I can endure whatever the Lord has for me with joy, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little, whether I'm in jail or whether I'm a free man. Because his secret was he was doing it through the Lord in the context of his relationship with the Lord. He, like Habakkuk, was saying and resolving, I will exalt in the Lord. Friends, this is, this is hugely important. If you're... Stability in life, if your emotional stability, to use that phrase, is hinged upon your circumstance, guess what? You won't be very emotionally stable. But if it's derived from the Lord in the context of a saving relationship with Him and meditating upon Him and who He is, then you can smile at the future. Come whatever may be, that which is most precious to you cannot be taken away. Jonathan Edwards, the patron saint of Sovereign Grace Chapel, he was a pastor, theologian in colonial America, and he pastored the most prominent church in New England, in, colon- in all of colonial America. He was pastoring the Congregational Church of Northampton. His grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, was regarded as the Pope of New England in a Protestant context. And, and that's the church he, he took over as a pastor. And... He was driven out of that church. He was slandered and maligned. And and I know in contemporary times, it's more regular that you hear pastors getting fired, but it was almost unheard of then. He was fired from his church with an overwhelmingly landslide congregational vote. I mean, imagine that. Probably the greatest theologian that America has ever produced was fired from his local church. And it was in the context of being slandered and maligned. In fact, one of the families that was involved in slandering him, it was like 15 or 20 years later, they finally repented and publicly confessed of the slander that they had brought towards him. After this, he would basically be spending time as a missionary amongst the Native Americans. 
But one of the, uh, I believe is one of the early biographers of Jonathan Edwards, as he observed him going through all this, he says of Edwards, it seemed as if his joy was untouchable. What an amazing statement. It seemed as if his joy was untouchable. Would to God that could be said of us. It'll only happen if if you resolve to treasure in the Lord rather than your circumstance. This is this is something of we what we see with Job, right? I mean, imagine that day in Job's life where there's those repetitive knocks at the door over and over. Uh, okay, the, uh, you know, the, the Chaldeans have come and they've stolen your cattle. They've murdered your servants. And, and I'm here to report it to you. And one of those knocks at the door was there was a storm and the wind blew and it crushed all ten of your children. And I alone am left to report it to you. I mean, just blow after blow after blow. In a very intense, concentrated time in the life of Job. And in Job one twenty one, he says, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was still resolved to treasure the Lord even in the midst of tremendous trial and upheaval. Friends, I don't know what is going to take place in the future. It doesn't look good. But I do know that one of the ways to prepare for whatever might be, whether it's persecution, whether it's total economic collapse, whether it's all of the above, is to grow our love and treasure of the Lord so that when everything around us is taken away, that one thing cannot, will not be taken away. A relationship with the Lord. But secondly, he doesn't stop there. Notice what he says, the second part of verse 18, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Notice that personal possessive pronoun, my salvation. And and really, this whole section, in a very real sense, has been about the God who saves. This prayer, this psalm, has been about the God who saves. We've seen it all throughout uh, this chapter, this imagery that continues to go back to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is all about the God who saves. God delivering His people out of Egypt, ultimately to bring them to the promised land. And so Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in this God of my salvation. But, but notice there's, there's even some more specifics that are given here in Habakkuk 
It says, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. That's pretty graphic. This is an interesting verse here in verse 13. For the salvation of your anointed, the anointed, the Mashiach, the Messiah. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Now, now, obviously Habakkuk is, is throughout this section speaking much of God's deliverance of his people in the past. But here's this hint, this inkling that in the midst of God saving his people, he was also saving his anointed, his Messiah. I mean, if, if, and if at any one point of these uh, if at any of these points in the history of Israel, God's people was decimated so that they're utterly obliterated, which could have easily happened at any point, it would have snuffed out God's promise through the Davidic line, His promise of an anointed one, His promise of a Messiah, His promise of a Christ. But it was in the midst of all that, even we see it early in the pages of, of Genesis even, when God uses Joseph to, to, uh, to rescue his family, he's saving, rescuing that line of Judah. We see it in, in the days even uh, later on with the kings when, when the kingly line is dropped down to just one little boy. And God rescues that little boy. God's rescue plan had to go on. And this is what Habakkuk is hinting at here. And then notice here, there's an imagery that I think goes back all the way back to Genesis 3. Notice you struck the head of the house of evil. Doesn't that remind you of Genesis chapter 3 and that what's often called the proto-euangelia and that first pronouncement of the gospel that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent? would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And this is a theme that runs throughout all those instances of God crushing the enemies of God. But ultimately, no, its fulfillment is in the Anointed One. The One, the Lord Jesus, who would crush the head of the serpent upon the cross. And so friends, what we see here is that Habakkuk in seed form speaking of something that grows you know, from an acorn in the Old Testament to a grand oak tree in the New Testament with the coming of Christ that we can see in full grand colors that this is our salvation that Habakkuk was rejoicing in. That God's plan of salvation would march on even in these dark, dark periods in, in ancient Israel when he was going to bring his hammer of judgment from the Babylonians and that the people would be vomited out of the promised land for 70 years, God's salvation would still march on. And this is, this is our hope. This should be your hope. That you rejoice in the Lord, you exalt in the Lord, but you also rejoice in the God of my salvation 
Friend, have you been saved? Have you been delivered from God's judgment through the perfect saving work of this anointed one, this Lord Jesus? Have you put your full confidence and trust in Him that He is your hope, that He has crushed the head of the serpent so you have the promise of eternal life with Him? If you haven't, what are you waiting for? Because friend, you really do have a reason to be depressed if that's not your hope. You really do have a reason to descend into the abyss of melancholy and darkness because your hope is bleak. It's worse than you think. You will be under the hand of God's judgment for all eternity. You think this life is filled with suffering. The next life will be far worse. But friend, it doesn't have to be that way. Put your hope in this God who saves. And then you could say with Habakkuk, I rejoice in the God of my salvation. I'm forgiven. I'm accepted before Him because of what Jesus has done. And friend, if you know this salvation, this is cause for rejoicing. Because again, this is whatever may be taken away from you. Our brothers and sisters who are imprisoned for their faith right now, Virtually everything, all the goodies of this life have been taken away. They're away from family. They're away from friends. They have no freedom. Their sustenance is meager. But what do they have? They have the God of their salvation. That cannot be taken away by even the most tyrannical, totalitarian regime. It's, it can't be taken away. Jesus promised through the pen of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 38-39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing. Just in case you were thinking of something else. Me. No other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. It's impossible. It is certain. It is fixed. Friend, that whatever personal trials you may be going through right now, whatever cosmic trials may be on the future... If you rejoice in this God who saves, your hope is fixed in that. It's untouchable. It can't be taken away. But not only to resolve to treasure the Lord in spite of circumstances, to rejoice in God's salvation in spite of circumstances, to rest in the strength that God supplies in the midst of those circumstances. Notice verse 19. And this, by the way, is why I think the Legacy Standard Bible is doing a good thing, a new translation. And just transliterating the names of God and titles of God because... Notice verse 19 says, The Lord God is my strength. Now, 
usually the English translations, when they come across the covenant name of God, Yahweh, they translate it with all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And then when they come across the title, Adonai, which means Lord, Master, King, they translate capital L, lowercase O, lowercase R, lowercase D. Well, what do you do when you get Yahweh Adonai? Are you going to translate it Lord, Lord? Well, that's weird. And so they translate it Lord God. And so you can see in the marginal reading, at least in the New American Standard, it's, it's Yahweh Adonai. In part, like it said, I think it'd just be easier to just transliterate it Yahweh. That way we know what you're talking about. Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh, covenant name of God. Adonai, King, Lord, Master. Yahweh Adonai is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet. He makes me walk on my high places. Notice this last statement that Habakkuk speaks of here. He speaks of God being his strength. He's the one who will give him the strength that he needs, the, the, the confidence that he needs. And notice the imagery here. He has made my feet like hinds feet. He has made me walk on high places. The imagery here is like of a mountain donkey who can squat 500 pounds, who can walk up a big rough terrain mountain because his thighs are jacked. God's going to make my feet like Heinz feet. I'm going to be able to climb mountains. Why? Because of His own strength? Because of His own spiritual fortitude? No. This is what God injects into me. This is what God will supply me with. He will give me the strength that I need to undergo this. And friend, isn't this how the Christian life works? God always supplies wherever He guides. I know it's cliche, but it's true. Wherever God guides, He always supplies. And friend, if you knew... If you knew, if God, if God gave you a bullet point presentation of the trials ahead in your life, you would, you would run in the opposite direction. You would do everything you could to try to avoid that bullet list of trials. But He veils it from you. It's behind the curtain. And so you are going to ignorantly walk forth and get two by four with these trials And He's going to give you the strength all along the way. He's going to be there with you. There was this tradition amongst some of the Native Americans where uh, when a boy turned 13 years old, that they would take that boy out into the middle of the woods and he would be left there overnight. Now, could you imagine being that 13-year-old in the midst of the darkness, hearing the crickets, every little sound of a ruffling leaf, you'd be startled, probably not able to sleep the entire night. And 
This 13-year-old would have to do it until sun came up. Well, when the sun would begin to come up, that young Native American would see not far from him a shadowy figure with bow out and it would be his father who was there protecting him the whole night there with him making sure no animal came to harm no other neighboring warrior from another tribe came to murder friend we know that the warrior God is there with us He's there protecting. We're not in the darkness all by ourselves. And in fact, that's what the scriptures speak of over and over in, in, in Isaiah 41:10. Do not fear, for I am what? With you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand when you know that God is there with you in the midst of the trial, He's going to supply you with the strength. But, but here's the thing, God, God will give you the strength when you need it. Not before, not after. I know I've quoted Corey Ten Boom quite a bit throughout the series. I'll do it one more time from The Hiding Place. When she was young, uh, a close friend of her father had died and they went to the funeral and they were on their way back from the funeral and, and she began to think about the reality of her own father dying. And she said, Dad, I, I don't think I would have the strength to endure you dying. And he asked Corey, he said, when, when you go to get on the train, when do I give you the ticket to get on the train? Do I give it to you a day ahead of time? Do I give it to you after you get on the train? She said, Dad, you give it right before we're about to go on the train. He said, that's when God will give you the strength you need to endure my death. And indeed she did. And she endured a lot more. She had to watch her sister die in a concentration camp. See, friends, God will give you the strength you need. He will give you what you need to endure, to persevere. These verses here at the close of Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 through 19 are cherished verses. In fact, you may be familiar with the hymn writer John Newton who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He was a man who wasn't always a hymn writer, wasn't always a pastor. He was a slave trader. He transported slaves on ships. He was involved in the slave trade business and even eventually himself became a slave. In the midst of one horrific storm for the first time in his life, when he was certain that he was going to die, he cried out to God for mercy. Remembering some of the early teachings and prayers that his mom had taught him, who passed when he was just six years old, he cried out to this God, and God saved him. 
And in his early years of the Christian life, he he had his eyes. He had a, a young woman in the crosshairs of his eyes named Mary, sweet Mary. He spent some years pursuing her. Eventually, she acquiesced to him in marriage, and they had a dear, sweet marriage. They weren't able to have biological children, but they adopted two children. Newton knew that the greatest trial of his life would be if he ever had to bury his wife, Mary. And so he prepared a sermon that he would not preach on any other... He wouldn't preach this passage on any occasion, but only if he had to bury his wife. This was the passage that he would use to prepare his heart for that most rigorous trial. That passage is none other than Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 to 19. It's the passage that that Newton would use to prepare his heart. It's the passage we need to prepare our own hearts. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, much spiritual riches to glean from here in Habakkuk. Much food for the soul. We thank you that you have not left us in the darkness, but you've given us the light of your word. You've given us the Lord Christ to feed upon. May we turn to you in the midst of these dark times, in the midst of our own personal trials. Lord, grant revival. But Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. In Jesus' name.